now that film has come to life. And as hard as it is for me to watch, whenever it plays in the theater, I have to walk out or go to the back of the theater and stare into a corner. (laughs) But it's the film that I feel represents who I am as a director the most. It's a film that was not easy to make or write. It was somehow the best for me. It was challenging in a way to be introspective and reflect on that in a way that was meaningful for the film, but to try to compartmentalize that to be my best self as a director as best as I could was a special kind of challenge. I'm Peter McCulley. That's Arnold Lim, an award-winning photojournalist and filmmaker. He's been a photo manager at four Olympic Games, and his latest short film, My Name is Arnold, is getting rave reviews. We'll get the story that's behind the screen on this edition of Today in BC. Thanks for joining me today, Arnold. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me, Peter. In addition to being a filmmaker, director, producer, photojournalist, you're also a colleague at Black Press Media working on various video and photo projects. So there's a lot to talk about, Arnold. Let's start with how you became interested in looking at life through a camera lens. That is such an interesting question, and part of me wonders where it actually began. There's a couple of things that happened to me when I was younger that I think formed the way that I look at the world or influenced the way that my future tracking for a job would begin. So there's a couple of things that happened. My parents came to Canada from South Korea, had five Canadian dollars in their pocket, and had borrowed money for the airplane ride over. So they came over in a situation where they did everything that they needed to do to make it here in Canada. And when I was born, my father put a certain amount of money aside to buy a camera. And he bought a camera, and he bought something a bit nicer than what he normally would have if he was just doing the tourist rounds, etc., in order to document my growth When I was 16, he gave that camera to me. I remember that moment and thinking to myself, I am going to be a photographer one day. I'm going to tell stories through a lens. There's one other thing that happened to me when I was approximately five years old. My father had a little grocery store in Edmonton. I was in behind the cash with him that day. I remember this day like it was yesterday. And then I remember hearing action and kerfuffle and then stress and someone saying, give me all your money. So there was a man that had a ski mask on and a knife and was very agitated and said, give me everything that you have in the cash register. My dad went to comply, but I don't know why exactly or if he wasn't fast enough, but he took his knife and slashed my father's stomach open. And then my father came to protect me because I was right next to him. He jumped on me to protect me from any further potential harm. And he got stabbed in the back while he was on top of me and got stabbed in the top of the head. He lost so much blood that we didn't know if he was going to live. I remember seeing him crawl across the store with a trail of blood calling out to my mother. An hour later, maybe, the ambulance, the police were there, and there was a photojournalist there. He walked up to me, a little boy, and said, can I take your picture? And I don't know why I said it, but I said yes. And he took my picture holding a little toy bat, and it was in the newspaper. 
I don't tell that story out loud very often. When I think back on those two things, part of me wonders if those two events, those important things that happened to me, were how or why I decided that I needed to be a photo slash video journalist. In my mind, I love visual storytelling. I love telling story through the language of visual composition and visual storytelling. But I wonder to this day if those two events crafted the narrative for me in a way that I still don't completely comprehend. That's a very powerful story. How old were you? My father purchased the camera when I was born. And then I think I was around five years old. I have to go back and talk to my parents about it. I've always wondered if I should go back to Edmonton. I visit Edmonton sometimes, and I wonder if I should go into the microfiche and find that photo again. I've never gotten the guts, even though I've been back to Edmonton. I lived there for 13 years. I even did my internship at the Edmonton Journal, but I could never get myself to do that. But I think one day I will. So, Arnold, you attend the Western Academy of Photography in Victoria. How did you come to be in the employee of Black Press Media? I was very lucky, actually. So there was a woman named Charlotte Huber, who's now a very good friend of mine, who went on maternity leave. So I was brought on as a nine-month pickup for a maternity leave at the Goldstream Gazette in Langford. And that's how I got my start. And the funny thing is, the very first little freelance assignment that I ever got from Black Press was through the Goldstream Gazette. And by chance, the thing that they asked me to go shoot was, hey, Arnold, the Victoria Film Festival is coming to town. And they're going to be having one of their events at a theater here in Langford. So why don't you go shoot that? So I went and shot that. I don't think I did a very good job at that time. <laughs> it's ironic that these 15 years later, film is such a big part of what I do. And now I'm mostly focused on video operations. And Black Press has actually played a very big role in my growth as a visual storyteller. I say that not just because I'm on a Black Press podcast or that I'm in a Black Press building or work with Black Press. It's because they simply have supported me in my ability to grow. They've given me opportunities. They've given me time to do the projects that have helped craft me as a storyteller. They've allowed me to move from being a photojournalist and writer to a video journalist and then primarily now video. It's been a situation where black press isn't something that I've done in spite of this or because of that. It's something that I do in partnership with the, the other storytelling that I do on a day-to-day -day basis and it's helped me become the storyteller that I am today. Let's talk about that. There's been an immense change in photojournalism and video in just the last five to ten years, mainly because of the internet, of course. How do you believe photojournalism and filmmaking have evolved in that period of time? And what challenges and opportunities are part of that changing landscape? There's so many things that have changed, like the democratization of equipment has excelled in a way that I simply did not or could not compute when I was younger. So when I was growing up, I was still in a dark room like literally shaking the stop bath and the fixer and waiting for my photographs to appear on a piece of 
photo paper in the dark and that red light and smelling those fumes and getting those chemicals on your hands. And today people rarely see anything like that. And we have tutorials and we have the internet where we can have so much information and learn so much. So I think the young people are way further ahead in their careers at a younger age than I was in theirs. The thing that I think has really changed things recently is probably AI. I don't completely understand the scope of how that's changing. Like when we look at the AI deepfakes that are out there right now, there's a gentleman who made a full short film through AI using it as VFX for one of the main characters. There's just things that are happening that I could not comprehend earlier on in my career. And even now, I don't know how much it's going to change things, but I think it's going to change things big time. The VFX that was so much more challenging to do before that is done on a green screen and is done with $100 million worth of VFX people, will that be democratized in that same way? That might not even be the word. Like, how is that going to affect the VFX industry? How is that going to affect Marvel industry? Is it going to change things when my son can use AI to make a short film with VFX that I could not even imagine doing even one or two years ago. That's changing things in a way that is going to affect storytelling. And every time there's a deep change in technology, it not only affects the technology and the way that people are able to tell stories, but affects the way people think and changes the stories that are told. And I think that's going to be the biggest change that happens to all of us. It's going to be the ability to tell stories that have never been able to be told before in ways that have never been able to be told before by people who could not traditionally afford to make those projects. It's both fascinating and amazing a little bit startling and scary too, but I'm excited to embrace what happens in the future. It scares me and excites me at the same time. How did you become interested in film? Was there an aha moment sitting in a theater somewhere, looking at a screen, someone telling a story and thought, I should do that? There was actually a moment. I don't know if it was an aha moment, but it was related to actually working to Black Press. I got assigned by the editor to do an A&E story. So I was working at Black Press as a photo journalist and writer more at the time. Didn't do a ton of video. And he said, I want you to cover an event called Real to Real. And it was a music video competition where a random filmmaker was paired with a random musician. And they made a music video together. And then it went to a competition and people would have an award at the end of the day. While I was doing the story with the gentleman, his name was Brian Skinner at Cinevic, which is an independent film society, I said at the very end of the interview, and I don't even know to this day why I said it, I said, so do you have any songs left over? <laughs> and at that point, I guess all the songs had already been matched up, but he said, we have this one song left over that wasn't selected. Do you want to take this song? If you want to take it, there's no worries if you just want to join. On almost a whim, I joined. Took the song that was available, made a music video for it, we won the audience award. We won the award. From that point forward, I was absolutely enamored with the moving image. It just seemed like a natural extension to me 
of visual storytelling in a way that I don't think I completely understood. I didn't know what a producer was. I didn't know what a DP or director of photography was. I didn't know all the different people that were involved in making it. And while many people had teams and crews, I did it with my DSLR and pretty much by myself with some help from a friend of mine named Natalie North. And we made it. And from that day forward, narrative really spoke to me in a way that even to this day, don't know that I fully comprehend. And so my time there at Black Press, randomly getting that a story, became a catalyst for me to get onto the path that I'm on today to, you know, working towards expanding my visual library. Tell us about the award-winning short film you made a few years ago, All in Madonna. Um, that was actually a feature film. So what is the difference between in length, short, and feature? Is it a time difference? Yes, that's a great question. Different film festivals, people sometimes describe what a feature is compared to a short a little bit differently in terms of exact length. But a feature is typically over 70 minutes. It's like an hour and a half-ish or more, something that you might see in a movie theater. When you go see a Marvel film or you see whatever films that you see in the movie theater today, a short film is usually like 10 to 20-ish minutes. It can be longer. It can be shorter. But the last short film that I made was 15 minutes. It's something that people often make as the proving ground. Sometimes it's something that you want to get into festivals. Sometimes it's to prove a concept. Sometimes it's something to work on your craft, sometimes to build crew. There's a lot of different reasons that you make them, but I make them because I want to tell stories and I want to work on my craft and try to build up a resume so that I can continue to push that side of the ledger forward and hopefully get into more directing work. All in Madonna had an interesting story. All in Madonna followed the story of a young teenager who goes to public school for the very first time at the age of 16 and learns dark secrets about her father. And she has to personally reconcile herself with the father that she thought she knew, and the man he may actually be. We were very fortunate to get telephone money from Telefilm's Talent to Watch program, and they gave us $125,000 to make a feature film. Now, on the surface, while that might seem like a lot of money, but when you have 35 to 50 people running around, everyone getting paid a small honorarium, a small fraction of what they deserve, it was film school for me. It was one of those things where you learn so much and everyone got paid so little and it was a grind every single day. It hurt a little bit along the way in terms of how challenging it was and how much it pushed me to understand form in a different way. When you have a short film or a short documentary that you're making, sometimes you can keep the story and the visual storytelling elements in your brain for the entire duration of the run, which may be four to six days. But when you have a feature film shooting over a month, it's hard to keep all the editing elements and all the different ideas in order when you're not shooting consecutively. You're shooting scene one today, and then you're shooting scene 123 tomorrow, and then shooting scene 50 the next day. So you don't know from day to day. You don't always remember all the elements from beginning to end. It was a great experience for me. I got to learn so much, and through that experience and through that film, I was able to get into the Directors Guild of Canada as a director, and I have an agent now to represent my film work, and I was very grateful for that opportunity. And as Canadians, we're very fortunate to have the programming that we do. That grant, while challenging and while not a, a lot of money to make a feature film, that was a catalyst for me and a game changer for me. For Canadians out there who are looking to get into the arts or looking to get into making feature films, 
we have opportunity that my friends in America don't have and are so jealous of. And we're very privileged to have those opportunities. And I'm so grateful to be Canadian. You took all that experience that you learned on that movie and the others and parlayed that into My Name is Arnold, which played at the Vancouver Asian Film Festival, won the Audience Award for Best Overall Short Film and Best Performance. And the film is about you. It follows your childhood as a Korean-Canadian growing up in Blue River. Yes, it does. It's funny. It's one of those things. I remember talking to a friend of mine who told me once when asked about making a feature film, he said, only after making a feature film did I feel ready to actually make a feature film. And that made a lot of sense to me. But after making a feature film, strangely, I felt like I had enough experience or felt more comfortable making a short film. So I went into a short film and for the first time I had decided to direct a short that I had written. Mostly I had worked with projects that other people had written. So I wrote a story about me when I was around 10, 12 years old, growing up in a small BC community called Blue River, where there's only around 250 to 300 people total. In order to get to school every day, we didn't even have a high school. So we got on a bus and drove to the nearest town over, which was Clearwater. And that was an hour, 30, hour, 40 minutes away every single day, there and back, over three hours on the bus. I remember those days in a way that I don't remember other parts of my life as clearly. I didn't know why I felt that way. But growing up in a town like that in the 90s, I was the only Asian kid in the school. And it wasn't always an easy experience. People would hit me. They would call me names. No one cared. No one did anything. I didn't do anything. It was a time where I went to school angry almost every single day. Maybe to process that, and maybe for cathartic reasons, I wrote a short, called it My Name is Arnold. As pompous as the title sounds, there are reasons why it's called that. And if you watch the film, that'll shed light on itself because it becomes part of the identity of the film and an identity of the main character in the film. I never thought it would get funded. Up to that point, I had applied for grants for many films. Maybe it was just me, but I wasn't able to get stories that were about the Korean-Canadian experience off the ground. I went in knowing that there's a very good chance that this film will never happen. But I wrote it, and I sent it off to the BC Arts Council, and I sent it off to the Canada Council for the Arts. I'm in the very privileged position to say that they funded this project, and I'm so grateful. Now that film has come to life, and as hard as it is for me to watch, whenever it plays in the theater, I have to walk out or go to the back of the theater and stare into a corner. <laughs> but it's the film that I feel represents who I am as a director the most. It's a film that, while it was not easy to make or write, it was somehow the best for me. I was going to ask you about that. The young man who plays Arnold in your movie, Ju Hwan Kim, there must have been a couple of moments when you're directing him in a scene and you have that full circle moment. You just stop and think, I was here, I lived that, now I'm directing him it was weird, and I, I don't know what other word I can use to really describe that experience. It was challenging in a way to be introspective and reflect on that in a way that was meaningful for the film, but to try to compartmentalize that to be my best self as a director as best as I could was a special kind of challenge. Even casting the film was so hard. That demographic isn't particularly well represented. And it's not just because there aren't lots of opportunities for 10-year-old Korean boys in film. That is part of it. But it's also a situation where a lot of young Korean families, we weren't necessarily navigated towards the arts. 
we're often navigated towards the sciences. There's an old joke among Asians and Koreans that I sometimes post in my wall. Let's say, what are the top three choices for jobs for Korean kids? And number one is doctor, number two is lawyer, and number three is failure. So, any, <laughs> so anything out of those two, you're a failure. So I guess that makes me a failure. But it's one of those interesting situations where I didn't know, even while I was doing it, at times, how this was happening. When we cast... Because there are so few applicants, we put ads in Korean newspapers across Canada. And we ended up doing a cross-Canada search, and we found a young man. And his name, like you said, was Chu Hwan Kim, 10-year-old little boy. And we found him across Canada in Langford, British Columbia. We found him in Greater Victoria. His mother asked him to apply. And she said to him, if you apply for this, I will buy you a Nintendo Switch and so for the Nintendo Switch, he agreed to do it. It was incredibly interesting to me because I spoke earlier about when I was young, I never knew of people that were pushed towards the arts or were navigated towards the arts. And this young boy was, and that was full circle and really special for me. And it was a great experience. And we hope people will get a chance to see the film. You mentioned receiving grants to help fund some of these people to help you with the film, but there's a lot of volunteers. I see your Facebook posts once in a while. Need two guys with a pickup truck to pick up <laughs> a 45-gallon drum and deliver it here tomorrow. Yeah. And where do I eat when I'm on the island? I need yeah. to shoot in a restaurant. Yeah, you know what? The great thing about Vancouver Island is that for whatever reason, we're very fortunate in that we have a level of support and artistry that punches way above our weight class in terms of our population. Friends of mine will know that I'll randomly post things like, oh my gosh, I need this location at this point at this time. And somehow the universe provides. <laughs> somehow it just happens and odd things happen. And I'll tell you a story about My Name is Arnold to go back to how the serendipity of how these things sometimes collide. We were making My Name is Arnold in 2021 when the floods happened. It was November. The water came in and washed the Malahad. So we were from Greater Victoria, and we had driven up to Duncan that day, Duncan and Seanigan Lake, to shoot there. And our entire crew got trapped because they had closed the highway. So we had part of our crew from Vancouver, most of our crew from Victoria, and on a small budget like ours, we just didn't have the money to rehouse everyone. And one of our PAs, which is called a production assistant, who came over and applied to work at a position that is traditionally not a well-paid position, often volunteer on indie productions, he had offered to come over from Vancouver to take this position by fluke because of a Facebook post. And while we were trapped, he was sitting on the corner of the restaurant we were eating at where we hadn't decided yet where we were going to go and what we were going to do because we had 30 people-ish trapped in places without a place to stay. So the producer and I drove around to all the Canadian tires and filled our vehicles with sleeping bags, which we serendipitously discovered were on 50% sale that day. <laughs> so I was driving in a car that was so full that I could barely move, filled with sleeping bags. And this young PA that I talked about that came over from Vancouver randomly was standing on the corner talking to an actor and said the words Camp Quanos. And at that exact moment, a random person that we didn't know heard the words Camp Quanos and said, 
did you say Camp Quanos? And then the young man who's the PA, his name is Joan. I said, yeah, I remember staying at Camp Quanos one time. He goes, yeah, I'm the manager at Camp Quanos. And then Jonah said, yeah, we're trapped with no place to sleep tonight. We don't know what to do. And he goes, why don't you guys come and stay at Camp Quanos? So somehow the serendipity of a young man that had volunteered to come over from Vancouver to be in Victoria, got trapped with us in the Duncan area, was standing on the corner in that exact moment. And in that exact moment, he said the word Camp Quanos, and the manager from Camp Quanos was walking by in that exact moment and offered to house the entire crew for that day. What are the chances of that actually happening? What is the statistical chance of that happening? I would say it's pretty close to zero, but it happened. When Today in BC continues, Arnold Lim talks about his time at the Olympics during COVID and his upcoming projects. Why spend hours searching dealerships, comparing makes and models? Find the best of BC's inventory in one place, todaysdrive.com. You'll have access to inventory across BC, where you can easily find a vehicle that fits your needs and gets you where you need to go in comfort. Get in the driver's seat. Don't miss out on the many options we have available for you. Powered by Black Press Media, todaysdrive.com connects you with exclusive new and used car deals. I'm Peter McCulley. Today in BC is a Black Press Media podcast. Arnold, you've worked as a photography manager at four Olympic Games. Just to attend one Games would be phenomenal. But of course, you're probably uh, sequestered in a small room with hundreds of thousands of photographs over two or three or four weeks. And are you actually out watching any of the competition? Watching roundabout, when I'm doing that work for the Olympics, I'm working as a photography manager, and we manage the photo operations for particular venues. They hire however many photo managers to the number of venues that they have at the Olympics, one per venue, and they come from all over the world. Two of them come from Canada. One of them is a friend of mine named Richard Lamb, and one of them is myself. And there are some others that kind of do the circuit and go to all, if not most of them. It's fun work, but like you said, it can be challenging. When I was in Japan, it was during COVID, and so we got trapped in a room. I don't want to knock the experience because it was what was needed at that time for them to make the Olympics happen, but the rooms are so tiny over there. I was getting claustrophobic. We weren't allowed to leave the room, so we got stuck in the room, and they were giving us food, three meals a day, a bottle of water with every meal. We couldn't go anywhere. It was so challenging. And then when I was in China, so interesting, when you go to eat or go into the restaurants, everyone is wearing those white hazmat kind of suits, Mm. so you're the only one not wearing that. So the foreigners are put into a hotel, and then they have people in hazmat suits feeding you. It's a really surreal, odd experience. But it's so special to see the entire world come to one location, to see 200 or more countries represented in one area, to see all the different cultures collide. It is such an amazing experience and so much more in my mind than just sport. It really transcends sport in a way that I don't think I understood until I experienced it in a way that I cannot, still to this day, I cannot adequately describe in words. A couple of things that happened that, that I'll never forget. One is Vancouver 2010, which is my first Olympics. I remember being at BC Place Stadium, which is very close to GM Place, where the gold medal game between America and Canada was happening. 
everyone was on their TV screens or they were in that building and, and Canadians everywhere were watching that game. It was 2-2. And when Sidney Crosby scored, I could hear yelling at one part of the building because the TVs that were going in a circle around BC Place were so far away from each other. I could hear yelling as a group of people were cheering for Canada. And then I'd hear another swell of yelling like, yay, further away. And then another one further away. So all just like from place to place, we hear all these different staggered tears of yelling. And I remember the feeling in the air was just magical. And I remember going into the washroom shortly after that at BC Place and everyone was so happy. I was in the urinal and the person in the urinal next to me put up his hands for a high five. <laughs> Just like he was cheering. People were singing. And it was, I was like, oh my gosh, what is happening right now? But that was the feeling in the air. And it's moments like that, that I'll remember forever. And that coming together of nation is so special in what I feel the Olympics is about. And one of the reasons that I love the Olympics. When you finally got out and around in Japan after the Olympics were over, the city was not totally locked down. You were able to get out to some restaurants. I know you probably headed for the nearest sushi restaurant because you used to be a sushi chef in, a, in another life, right? I was a sushi chef, and one of my goals was to have sushi in Japan. So this is my first time in Japan. Having been a sushi chef for over 10 years and having a restaurant and learning sushi from a really amazing sushi chef named Shigeru Nakayama, who was the very first sushi chef in Victoria, I was thinking, I got to go, I got to go, I got to go, but then I didn't. And the reason that I didn't was because it was an experience that I wanted, but felt wrong to experience it without my children. So I made a point to myself that I'm going to do it but I'm going to do it with my children by my side. My wife and I have a deal that we have with our children, and it's that if you graduate from high school, that is a big milestone for many Asian families. So we said we will go on a vacation to a place that you choose, wherever you want in the entire world. And my daughter gets to choose one, and my son gets to choose one. And my daughter chose Japan. We're going to have that experience. Hopefully they're a couple of years apart. So yes. You can pay for one vacation and then... Two years apart. Excellent. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And has your son decided where he'd like to go? He originally said Italy, but he called that and doesn't know where it is yet. So we're going to have to figure something out. What advice would you have for aspiring photojournalists and filmmakers who are looking to make an impact with their work? Any key pieces of advice you would give them as they start out on that road? It's one of those tricky things where there's so many great photographers out there. There's so many good visual storytellers out there. And the opportunity today is greater than it's ever been. And it's so special to see on Instagram and see on YouTube all the learning opportunities that are out there. The thing that I might have told myself when I was younger and starting out would be to really embrace the process and not be too worried about the quote unquote results. Because there were times when I was very results-oriented and sometimes let that get in the way of process or halt my process because the results didn't happen. And I felt really hurt when things didn't happen. It affected my soul. And I understand that. I still feel that way when a grant doesn't come through or something doesn't happen. It still hurts me deeply. But... I now try my best not to let it affect the process and affect my willingness to keep on moving forward, even if it is without that grant, because sometimes it's my turn and sometimes it's not. 
to get whatever opportunity that's out there. But what I've found that works for me is regardless of whose turn it is to win that thing, it's always my turn to keep pushing that process forward, keep moving forward, keep grinding, do that thing, whatever it is to whether it be reading that article about photography or going out and shooting something or directing that little piece or gathering your friends and making a short film, even if it's for no money or working on and learning about sound or whatever it is that can round out your game. So that's the thing that I've really embraced. And I think that work ethic is what drives you forward when things are tough. And I think it's that work ethic that I learned from my parents and got from my parents. It would be really to embrace the process, to feel the things that you need to feel, but not to let them stop you from moving forward. Because ultimately, as cheesy as it sounds, the thing that I think that I've learned in my journey is that the person that stops me from moving forward is me. And if a grant will move me forward, maybe 10 steps, even if I don't get that, I can still move one step, but that's still forward momentum. Will I move that extra nine steps? Maybe later, but I'll still move that one step forward. And even though it hurts along the way, that is how I found that I was able to work through and be able to tell some of the stories that I've been able to tell and I feel very lucky to be in that position. That's Arnold Lim, photojournalist and filmmaker. He's been our guest on this edition of Today in BC. If you have suggestions or comments, send us a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find Today in BC podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, and Google Podcasts. Discover what's happening around our province with todayinbc.com. Sign up today to get the latest news right to your inbox and never miss the news that's important to you and your family. From community news in your neighborhood to what's happening in our province, your source for daily news is todayinbc.com.